Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 3. In the last episode, I covered Numbers Chapter 14 through 20, sections that included the ramifications, essentially God's judgment on the Israelites for not trusting him by proceeding to the promised land of Canaan. This part of the book also includes more instructions for the priest, reiterations and clarifications of the commandments and statutes, and Aaron's budding rod. This week, I'm picking up in chapter 21 and working through chapter 24, which surely seems like I'm slowing down, but is more of a testament of how dense this part of the narrative is. And with that, let's get started. The very first verse in chapter 21 provides a couple of topics for future coverage. In here, we're told that the Israelites, of course still wondering, were traveling through a region known as Arad, while on the road to Ethereum. At least, that's what it's called in both the New Revised Standard and New International Versions. In the King James, it's known as the Way of the Spies. And remember, all three of these are translated from essentially the same Hebrew. The takeaway is that the place known as Ethereum is unknown, so it won't be covered later. But the king of Arad is mentioned, as he sends out his army to face the Israelites. The two forces skirmished, and some Israelites were captured. Then the Israelites turned to God, and after that they overwhelmed the Aridians at a place known as Hormah. We know a little about Hormah, so it'd get added to the list, too. The text then circles back to a passage I covered last week. The Israelites bypassed Edom, since their king wanted nothing to do with them, and traveled from Mount Hor towards the Red Sea. Early in this journey, the Israelite populace does what they've proven quite adept at doing. They complain to Moses about how bad the situation is. Once again, lamenting that they should have remained as slaves in Egypt this time adding a complaint about how detestable the freely provided manna and quail are. God overhears their complaining and sends poisonous serpents. A footnote in the New Revised Standard tells us that the original Hebrew can be alternately interpreted as fiery serpents. Either way, this causes the people to repent their complaining to Moses, where they ask him to reach out to God and ask God that the serpents be removed. Moses prays, and God responds, telling him to make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. Moses does so, crafting a figurine serpent out of bronze. Whenever someone was bit by the presumed snake, they would look at the pole and live through the ordeal. So, the prayers weren't quite answered, and they still had to suffer for their complaining but at least it wasn't deadly. The people continue their journey towards Moab, encamping at a place known as Oboth, then on to Eabarim, both duly noted. And we're told something else. The second place, the tongue-twisty one, was in the wilderness that butted up against Moab, towards the sunrise, so oriented towards the east. From here, they travel to the Wadi Zerid, by now, you should be realizing that the lack of topics in Leviticus is more than made up for in numbers. Then more places and people, 
all of whom they encounter along their journey. Places such as the other side of Arnon, the wilderness bordering the Amorites, Wahibib, and the Supa, the seat of Ar, all of these known to either a lesser or greater degree in the outside record, and all to be covered later. They then went to a well at a place called Beer, spelled just like the adult beverage. They received refreshing water from this well. Now, they may not have been in the land flowing with milk and honey, but they did get refreshment at Beer. Next, they journeyed through Matana, Nahuliol, Bamuth, to a valley lying in the region of Moab, near Mount Pisgah. And no, this isn't the Blue Ridge Peak just south of Asheville in North Carolina. This one is thought to be one and the same as Mount Nebo. Interestingly, in North Carolina, just a stone's throw from Pisgah is Nebo. Not one and the same, though. Throughout the U.S., like many things biblical, there are many places that share these names, among others. Later in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it's on Nebo that Moses dies. I'll get to that passage, well, when I get to it. No promises on timing. I've learned my lesson. Then more history. We learn that the king of the Amorites, named Sihon, was asked by Moses to let the people pass through his territory, with the same promise made that was made earlier to the Edomites. They'd take no crops and drink no water from wells, and also follow the king's highway. Sion gave the same response as Edom, no. And he brought his army to bear on the Israelites, engaging in a fight at a place known as Jehaz. The Israelites defeated the Amorites and seized territory as far as the boundary with the Ammonites, land that spanned from the rivers Arnon to the Jabuk. These are roughly around the Dead Sea, in the modern country of Jordan. The Israelites settled here, as the text tells us they settled in all the towns of the Amorites, in Heshbon and all of its villages. Heshbon was the home city of King Sion of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and captured all of his land as far as the Arnon. Many more people and places to cover. After settling in this area, Moses sends spies in the Jazer, a city east of the Jordan. After this, the Israelites would capture the area and dispatch the Amorites who lived there. But that's not the only history in this chapter. In the next section, we're told that the Israelites then traveled to Bashan. This region was to the east of the Sea of Galilee, and rather sizable. When they got there, King Og of Bashan sent his armies to fight off the invading Israelites. A battle ensued at Edri. This is a town that is about as far south in the modern country of Syria, on its western border with a spit of Jordanian territory. In this battle, God tells Moses that he will hand over Og and his armies to the Israelites. And he does, with the Israelites killing King Og, his sons, and all of his people, until there was no survivor left. Of course, this meant that the Israelites gained all of the Bashanian territory, which gets me to chapter 22. After defeating the kings Shion and Og, the Israelites set out again, 
this time encamping in the plains of Moab, across the Jordan River from Jericho. It was then that Balak, the son of Zippar, the king of Moab, saw what Israel had done to the Amorites. Moab was in great fear of the Israelites, because there were so many of them. King Balak told the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us, as an ox licks up the grass of the field. This was a quote of the king, as found in Numbers. Some of the context may have been lost in the past few thousand years, but it should be clear what he meant. Back in the text, King Balak sends messengers to Balaam. There's a great deal of history around Balaam and his dealings with the Israelites. For now, know that he was considered a prophet by some of his contemporaries. In his message, Balak tells Balaam that a people has come out of Egypt, they have spread over the face of the earth, and they have settled next to me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are stronger than I. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that whomever you bless is blessed, and whomever you curse is cursed. Accompanying this message to Balaam was a contingent of elders of both Moab and Midian. They were also bringing along the necessary payment for Balaam. Apparently, in that place and time, curses could be bought for a price. When the elders finally get to Balaam, he tells them to, Stay here tonight, and I will bring back word to you, just as the Lord speaks to me. They do as he said, and stay the night. Then something interesting. God appears to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Balaam replied, King Balak, son of Zippor of Moab, has sent me this message. And he repeated, essentially verbatim, the message the elders had delivered to him. God then tells him, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Which has a lot of theological layers to it. You can explore those on your own. The next morning, Balaam tells the elders, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. The elders then return to King Balak, telling him that Balaam has refused to go along with his cursing plan. Balak wasn't going to give up that easily, so he sends more officials, this time many more and more distinguished. They relay a message to Balaam saying, Do not let anything hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me I will do. Come, curse this people for me. Balaam replies to the king, Although Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. You remain here, as the others did, so that I may learn what more the Lord may say to me. So the officials stay the night. Again. God once again appears to Balaam and says, If the men have come to summon you, get up and go with them but do only what I tell you to do. So the next day, Balaam travels back with the officials on the back of his donkey. God was displeased. Specifically, his anger was kindled because the prophet was now going to see the king, which to me seems a bit unexpected, as we were just told that God told him to go. Something likely got lost in translation. 
God sends an angel who confronts Balaam in the road, in front of two of Balaam's servants, while Balaam was on the back of his donkey. The donkey sees the angel in the road with sword drawn. Now, this donkey isn't dumb, and he wasn't going to keep going towards a sword-wielding angel. So, the animal gets off the road and into a field. Balaam is still on the donkey's back and is upset by the donkey going into the field. He then either hits or kicks the donkey, trying to get it back on the road. But apparently the donkey continues down a path between vineyards. The angel suddenly appears. They always suddenly appear. In front of the donkey on this narrow path, each side of the path flanked by a wall. The donkey gets so close to one of the walls that Balaam's foot scrapes up against it. So, Balaam strikes the donkey again. The assumption, at least at this point, is that while the donkey saw the angel, Balaam did not. Then the donkey lays down, with Balaam still on its back. Balaam strikes it again. Then, one of the more interesting things in the Bible, God enables the donkey to talk to Balaam. And you know that by now, this donkey has many choice words for his violent master. He says to Balaam, What have I done to you, that you have struck me these three times? Balaam's reaction was very different from what mine would have been, because if my donkey or horse began talking to me, I'd first want to talk about that. But instead, Balaam says, Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand. I would kill you right now. The donkey was having none of it, immediately replying, Am I not your donkey, which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I been in the habit of treating you this way? Essentially, the your faithful servant counter-argument. Balaam replies, No. Then we're told that Balaam could finally see the angel standing before him, in the path, sword still in hand, Balaam falls on his face. The angel then addresses Balaam, saying, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? I have come out as an adversary, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let it live. Balaam replies, I have sinned for I did not know that you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now therefore, if it is displeasing to you, I will return home. The angel of the Lord told Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only what I tell you to speak. Balaam does as he's told. He finally makes it to King Balak, and the king wasn't being very patient. He goes out to meet the prophet, venturing to the edge of his territory, on the border formed by the river Arnon. Then the king and the prophet exchange words, with the king expressing his frustration. Did I not send to summon you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam replies, I have come to you now. But do I have power to say just anything? The word God puts in my mouth, that is what I must say. The pair then traveled to Kuriath Wozoth, where the king sacrifices oxen and sheep. The chapter ends with the king taking the prophet up to Bamuth Baal, and from there he could see some of the people of Israel. Bamuth Baal was an elevated point in the land of Moab. 
maybe a large hill or a small plateau. It would later be occupied by the tribe of Reuben. And with this, we come to chapter 23. At this point, the prophet orders the king around, saying, Build me seven altars here, and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. He does as he's commanded, and they both offer up a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam tells the king, Stay here beside your burnt offerings while I go aside. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me. Whatever he shows me, I will tell you. God tells Balaam to relay a message to the king. So the prophet returns to the king, essentially telling him that he would rather be put to death than curse Israel. The king is angry at the prophet, claiming that instead of cursing Israel, Balaam has blessed them. Balaam reminds the king that this was what God has told him. Essentially, don't shoot the messenger. The king invites the prophet to spy on the Israelites from another vantage point so that he can see their entire populace, this time at the top of Mount Pisgah. Once at the summit, or at least near it, they build another seven altars and offer up a bull and a ram on each. Balma again goes and speaks with God. God tells the prophet to relay another message to the king, to tell the king, Rise, Balak, and hear, Listen to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a human being, that he should lie, or a mortal, that he should change his mind. Has he promised, and will he not do it? Has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? See, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, acclaimed as king among them. God, who brings them out of Egypt, is like the horns of a wild ox for them. Surely there is no enchantment against Egypt, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, See what God has done? End quote. The prophet continues on, telling the king that he has no hope of defeating Israel. But the king does not give up, taking Balaam to another location, this time at Mount Peor. Again, another seven altars, followed by the sacrificing of seven bulls and seven rams. And that's chapter 23. 24 continues the conversation between the king and the prophet. Balaam is beginning to get the message that God is sending. It's too bad the king was not. This time, the text tells us that after the sacrifices, he didn't go looking for omens, and instead headed for the wilderness. Then the Spirit of God spoke, essentially telling him that God has chosen to bless Israel. And anyone who blesses Israel will likewise be blessed, and anyone who curses Israel will be cursed. Pretty clear. Except to the king. He was furious at Balaam, where he said, well, probably yelled at him, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but instead you have blessed them these three times. Now be off with you. Go home. I said, I will reward you richly, but the Lord has denied you any reward. Balaam replied, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord? To do either good or bad of my own will? What the Lord says, that is what I will say. 
So now I am going to my people. Let me advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. And with that, Balaam has his fourth and last prophecy, telling the king and all who were with him that they will eventually be defeated by the Israelites, and not just the king of the Moabites, but also the Shethathite, Edom, Seir, the Amalekites, and the Kenites, among others. Not exactly what the king was hoping for. And that's it for now about Balaam, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up in Numbers chapter 25, when the Israelites turned their backs on God and began to worship the Moabite deity of Baal Peor. You don't want to miss it. Normally, in these summary episodes, I would take a minute here and list out the topics uncovered that will be part of the deeper dive later, but this section of numbers was so dense that I'll skip that part, at least for this week. Like I said before, numbers has far more topics than Leviticus, but not quite to the level of Exodus. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.